Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to the Michael Calderon Show. We're so glad you could join us this evening. Um, we have a great show in store for you. Um, breaking news uh, coming out of Washington. Uh, President Trump uh, has uh, pretty much let uh, Director Comey of the FBI uh, let him go from his position. So that's uh, breaking news happening right now, um, which is uh, there's a lot that could be said about. Um, today's guest is uh, R. Blandon, who is an immigration attorney, and uh, she's not just an immigration attorney. Uh, she is one of the top rated Florida immigration attorneys, uh, a graduate from the University of Pennsylvania Law School and um, board certified in immigration and nationality law. She's an expert speaker who's been interviewed by journalists covering immigration issues. And uh, she's been published in the monthly journal of the Florida Bar and nationwide magazine of the American Immigration Lawyers Association. Uh, Ms. Blanton has two undergraduate degrees from Boston University and speaks Spanish and French fluently. And uh, if you want more information about Elizabeth Blandon and her firm, please go to the website, www.blandon-law.com. And uh, we have a, a very interesting show today. We're going to be talking about uh, some of the um, some of the folks that have been detained by ICE recently. We're going to talk about that, as well as uh, a little brief uh, information on the case of Marco Coelho, uh, who was a Venezuelan national um, who was also detained. Um, Elizabeth, how are you this evening? Very well, thank you, Michael. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. And, um, you know, your bio is a lot longer than than the intro that I did on the show. So I'm hoping that uh, that folks will, will go to your website, uh, the website for the firm at www.blandon-law.com. And um, you currently, uh, your firm is located here in South Florida. And... Um, and tell us about your firm and the type of law that you practice. So ours is a boutique firm. All we do is immigration law. All of our clients are only immigration law clients. We have developed a specialty in two kinds of cases that have to do with um, protecting foreigners from abuse. And I like to say whether it's abuse by a government with a type of case known as asylum. And that's what our, our client Marco Coelho was involved in. And another type of case that we're very known for is for uh, green cards for foreign nationals who are abused by a person who may be a U.S. citizen or a resident spouse. And that abuse can be either physical or non-physical. But in addition, we do many types of immigration, you know, the regular business visas and the family law uh, cases, as well as defending people in immigration court. Wonderful. Wonderful. And uh, and I know that I, over the years, and, and we've known each other for, I'm not going to admit how long we know each other for, but uh, <laughs> but um, I have I have referred uh, many clients to your firm and uh, and they've always been extremely happy with the results. 
And in the very rare case that, yes, and and in the very rare case that, uh, you know, their situation was kind of to a point where where no uh, interceding by an attorney was going to help, you were very upfront and forthright about it. So, you know, I appreciate that. I do. Um, And let's talk about what's been going on uh, here in the United States with – with folks being detained by ICE, uh, folks who have been detained uh, in various situations, including uh, most recently uh, Marco Coelho, uh, who is a client of yours and is a, a Venezuelan national. So let's talk about yeah. that that situation that's going on with people being detained. So um, it's an interesting situation in that there's not a change in the law. And, you know, sometimes clients will say to me, well, did the law change? The way the government works, the way immigration and customs enforcement, or as I call them the immigration police officers work, is they don't necessarily have to have the law change. The law is drastic enough as it is. What happens is that for many years, um, immigration officers have have had different priorities as to who they should um, remove from the country and who they shouldn't. In general, people without any arrest, people who have been here over a decade, people who have U.S. citizen children, those have never been considered a priority. People who own businesses, people who pay taxes, there has never been a priority to deport those foreign nationals, even though we know that they may have entered the United States legally and then overstayed their welcome, um, because 40% of the people who are in the United States undocumented did enter legally. So even though we know that they're out there, there's never been kind of like a rush to get them out. And that's what's changed. Um, In March of 2017, an executive order came out from the president giving carte blanche, opening up the ability for any immigration and customs enforcement officer to detain anyone who was undocumented. And so some officers said, I have been waiting for this my entire life, my entire career. And so they are now detaining anyone who they see fit. And of course, who are the easiest people to detain well, the people who actually show up and go and go to their hearings or go to court or to, you know, there's, for example, I don't know if it's, it's well known, but a person can go to court for a parking ticket and can be detained, even though they've never committed any arrest. They can just go for a parking ticket and immigration and customs enforcement officers are in court. That never used to be the case. And now it is. So that's what's going on in our world today. <laughs> And, and and that's and that's that's a lot. Um, let me ask you how how much uh, of an impact did the executive order from President Trump have on the existing law? So it didn't change the law at all. It didn't touch the law at all. What what happened is um, in in the prior administration. Um, since it is well known that we don't have sufficient resources to deport everyone. Um, And I think the last calculation was that if absolutely not one human being enters the United States by the northern, the southern borders, or, you know, uh, through the air or or the sea, no one enters in any way, it would take 70 years to deport everyone who's in the United States without authorization. So since we know we don't have the, the resources to deport everyone, what happened is before we used to have priorities as to who would be removed first. And the first ones were people with outstanding deportation orders, people that judges had already 
given them their day in court and they and had found that they should be deported. People who were, of course, national security concerns, people who had criminal convictions. There were a series of people, people who entered recently. There was, a, there was also a memo that said anyone who entered the United States after January 1st, 2014, those people should be deported first. Now that is off the table. Now they are just as likely to put someone in um, a detention center or to just deport them without ever having that person see a judge, whether that person's been here 10 years or has been here 10 months. So let, let, me, let me just get a point of clarification here. Um, a, an immigration and customs enforcement officer or agent, if you will, um, can detain someone, take them into custody, and actually deport them without ever going in front of a judge? Right. And that's a process that's known as expedited removal. Just today I had a, a, a woman who said to me, I don't think I was ever deported. And I said, were you caught? And she said, yes, I was caught. And I said, were you fingerprinted? Yes, I was fingerprinted. Did you go in front of a judge? No, I didn't go in front of a judge. How did you get back to your country? Well, I, it, it happened in Texas. And she said, I was returned to my country. No judge, nothing. She didn't even know she was deported, and she was. It's called expedited removal. It's the ability of an immigration officer to just return someone. Unfortunately, for purposes of the law, it does count the same as a deportation. Right. So, so th this has got to be a, a, um, a unique scenario in that you have uh, a law enforcement officer who also – gets to fill in the role of judge and jury. Right. It, the reason expedited removal exists as a concept is because it made sense when the idea came out. When the idea came out of expedited removal, it was, you know, they wanted to remove anyone who was trying to sneak into the United States quickly. So they had, um, th there were limitations. It said anyone who is caught within 100 miles of a border and has entered within the last two years. What they didn't want was people to quickly get into the United States and hide, and then the officers couldn't follow them, you know, kind of give chase and return them. So it made sense at that point. The big change came this year when that limitation was taken completely removed. And now officers have the ability to do expedited removal anywhere in the United States, regardless of how long the person has been in the United States. So if someone has – and that's based on the executive order. Yes. So so let's say we have someone, you know, um, who has been here for 30 years, has, uh, has a local business, children, family, et cetera, and they did not enter the U.S. legally. ICE can, can come over take them into custody, and do an expedited removal with no questions asked. Right. And there's, and there's two points that make it even worse. They may have entered legally. They may have entered legally, number one. And number two, if they were put in front of a judge, there's a type of case that I can do that I could at least argue and try to get them residency. There's something called cancellation of removal that basically it's what's known as the 10-year law. A lot of people have this misconception that if they've been in the United States for 10 years, they can apply for, for this type of case and they can get a green card. It doesn't work 
quite like that, but that's, that's a general belief that I've been here 10 years, I can apply for this thing. Well, you can only apply for that if you go in front of a judge. If you're given expedited removal, you cannot appellation. So you cannot become a resident that way. So they have a, they have a very um, good reason not to get you in front of a judge. If they just do an expedited removal, you can't do anything about it. It's just you're expedited, you're out of the country, and then that's it. You have to apply to you know, get a, a, a tourist visa the same way, and it's very unlikely you'll get it. You'd have to apply for a work visa or something else, and it would take years to get. So. And and if, I imagine that if someone has been deported, uh, like like the client that you saw today, uh, who didn't even know that they were deported, if someone has been removed, turned turned away, um, I imagine that there's a record of that, and when they attempt to come back or to apply for some kind of status, that that's going to be a problem. Yes, and that's the reason I believe. Um, well, I believe that it's the reason, but um, there's something called Freedom of Information Act requests where people ask the government for records. And I read today that the level of Freedom of Information Act requests has um, quadrupled, do you say? It's four times as many, in other words. In the yeah. last four, four months, it's quadrupled. So many people are asking to see their records to see if they were ever deported, if, they, if what happened to them was expedited removal or, or what they can do. That's that's the level of concern that's out there because, you know, attorneys can only do so much. You need to know the past of the person, and sometimes they don't know their own past. Likewise, I've had clients who didn't know they had deportation orders on their head. I once took a client, and it's unusual, but it does happen because uh, what they do is they mail you a, a notice saying you have to appear in court. And if you don't get that notice, you don't even know it, and then you're, you have a deportation order on your head. I once had a client who applied for naturalization and found himself in front of immigration court because they had mailed a notice to him and he was not at his address. And the notice said, you have to appear in court. When you don't appear in court, you get a deportation order on your head. So wow. these things happen. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yes, indeed. And, and are there particular, you know, we hear so much about um, folks from the Middle East, uh, particularly those of the Muslim faith, um, are, are there particular countries that are targeted more than others? Yes, undoubtedly. Um, and I'm, I'm, I tell my clients that I, I, it is my job to prepare them completely. And I tell them that there's no doubt um, that this happens. So, for example, in our asylum cases, um, there are people who are applying from asyl- for asylum from Syria. Syria is one of many predominantly Muslim com- countries that has, uh, you know, it has, I mean, it's just terrible. The optics are terrible. We all know what's going on in those countries. And um, I know someone who was recently told, not here, in, not here in South Florida, but in another part of the country, they were told, sick, not today, asylum cases are 60% national security and 40% humanitarian aid. It used to be that the main concern in those types of cases is, will you be harmed if you are returned to your country. Now the interviews are completely changed to will you be harmed if you return to your country and can you absolutely positively without a doubt prove to me that you have never been a terrorist and no one you've ever known is a terrorist and you might never marry a terrorist and your cousin's not a terrorist and your cousin's third wife is not a terrorist and that's, you know, I'm only exaggerating by a very little bit 
Um, I've right. had a Syrian, <laughs> sadly, it's just a little bit of exaggeration. I've had um, Syrian, you know, Syrian asylum case where the man was giving food to people who were, you know, that were, you know, they were victims of a bombing and uh, in Syria, and they were saying that he was helping terrorists because he was giving food to someone in the street who needed food. And they said, well, how do you know that, that wasn't a terrorist you were giving food to? I mean, it's just wow. it's crazy. So, and that is, I believe, 100% because he was Muslim, because I've never seen that kind of questioning in any other kinds of cases. Wow. And um, so, so let, me, let me throw a scenario at you. And, and, and for any listener that, that has a question, if you want to call in, the phone number is 929-477-1785. Again, that number is 929-477-1785. So what happens to children who are born here in the United States, born to parents who do not have legal status here in the U.S. Let's say both Those parents are... do not have legal status, and and they have a child that's born, you know, here in the U.S. So what happens to the child if you, I'm sure you mean if the parents are ordered to leave the country? Yes, yes. I'm sorry. I should have elaborated oh, yeah, a little right. further. <laughs> right, right. You can't read my mind, Elizabeth, after all these I years. Can, you know, <laughs> one of the many skills of being an attorney is after a certain point you start reading people's minds. Um, That's right. <laughs> and you start knowing what they really mean when they say something. No, That's but right. um, So one, one, of the, one of the sad truths about deportation is how it affects um, U.S. citizen children, and there's actually a report that came out. I'm, I'm a big reader, and, and there was a report that came out that spoke about an entire generation of children that is facing maybe not the actual deportation, but they are facing the fear, and they are growing with the fear and the anxiety that at any moment their parents can be can simply not show up. They simply might not show up that day from work or might not come home. Um, after taking, you know, a sibling to school or something. So they're living with this fear, this fear all the time. And that, I believe, is going to affect them later on. But today, the way the law stands is if the parents are removed, the way the the courts see it is whether an undocumented parent chooses to take their U.S. citizen child with them back home is their choice. So they'll say it doesn't matter that the U.S. citizen child is here, well, you know, if you want to take your child to your country, go ahead. There, there, you know, you can do that. And if you want the child to stay in the U.S., well, there's hopefully some kind of power of attorney or child care plan. And at my office, this has become such an issue that we're actually having a, sem- a free seminar on June 3rd in Weston. There's in- there should be information on that on the website about child care plans and power of attorney to protect you're, families. You're breaking, up, you're, you're breaking up, Elizabeth. I, I heard that you have a you're going to be hosting a free seminar June 3rd right. in Weston. Right, June 3rd in Weston, and hopefully there's information on that at our at our website. It's I'm going to be held at the comfort at the comfort suites there in in Weston, and basically it's a free seminar to talk in part about this about child care plans and power of attorneys for people who are who believe they might have to leave the country, and it's like okay now what do I do with my child. They should have documents in place 
um, and there will be a family law attorney who will be there to discuss it in detail, but they should have a plan of action because it does happen, and someone else should be able to then, you know, take power over the child and make decisions about health care and about education if the plan is not to take the children with them. So, so the U.S. government would actually break up a family, if you will, in, in terms of, yes. you know, the parents leave the, the child or children um, potentially uh, stay back in the U.S., but not with their parents. They'd have to have someone appointed as guardian. Right, and and the idea of um, a program known as Deferred Action for Parents, DAPA, that was something that, uh, you know, it, it was an idea for an executive order. And that did not pass the Supreme Court because the Supreme Court was an eight-member court. So, unfortunately, that did not pass. And so we were not able to get work permits and authorized presence for parents of U.S. citizen children. And and how about uh, that? That that's kind of a hard one to. Uh, I I want to use the word accept because I can't think of a of another word right now. But um, that that's really a, a difficult situation to, you know, h- how does a parent? I mean, the the dilemma that a parent must feel, you know, they they fled their country, their home country looking for a better life and had children in the U.S., you know, with the goal of the American dream. And now they have the difficult choice of leaving their children in the U.S. to be raised by someone else or to go back to their country, to their home country, with their children. Right, and it's that, even more interesting. It's even more interesting when you compare it to, for example, someone who comes here as a student, right? Someone who comes here for maybe six months, and oh, by the way, I happen to have a U.S. citizen child because I'm here for six months, and then that person is able to change status and maybe get some kind of work visa or something, and they've only been in the U.S. maybe six months, and they're allowed to stay with their little baby child. You know, and they've literally just arrived here and they're brand new to the country. That person's allowed to stay. But there's no what I call statute of limitations. There's no point at which a person can say, okay, put my name on the line. I always hear the myth of go to the back of the line. There is no line. <laughs> there is no line for these <laughs> people to get in the back of. If there were, I would have put them all back there a long time ago. I've had my own firm for, my own, uh, firm for 15 years doing immigration law. I've been an attorney for 20 Believe me, I would have got all those names I would have put on that list and said, okay, let's put you at the back of the line. They would have been more than happy to do it. There is no line for many of them to, to go on. So, unfortunately, they're living in a situation that has no end uh, unless we can find some very creative solutions. And thankfully, that's what sometimes we find at the firm. Sometimes we have some very creative ways of interpreting the law and we're able to get residency for some people. I had a, a young lady who was told by three attorneys, there's nothing that can be done for you. And I absolutely refused to let her just give up on her future. She had a full ride to Duke when she found out that she was not a U.S. citizen. 
Her parents had never told her. And wow. She went to them and said, yeah, when she said, I'm going to Duke, her mom said, I need to talk to you. You need to sit down. I need to tell you. And that's oh when God. she discovered she, yeah, that's when she discovered she couldn't get a driver's license. She wasn't going to go to Duke. Absolutely nothing. She wasn't a U.S. citizen. And I was able to do something, get her asylum. And when you get asylum, it doesn't matter if you entered without authorization. That's one of the beautiful things about asylum. Um, And it also doesn't matter necessarily how long you've been, if you have a reason today as to why you can't go back. So I was able to win her asylum case. That took two years, but we won it. And today she's a resident. So. And and did she make it to Duke? No, she didn't. By the time we went through everything, by then, you know, by then she decided not to go to Duke. Yeah, I wish I wish I'd had that happy ending to that story. Uh, yeah, that, that would initially. Have been. <laughs> yeah, that, that's initially what motivated her to, to to find me to go through so many attorneys. She she just wanted to go so badly to that school, but by the time that we got the you know the the resident well not the residency the asylum status for her, by then you know they had their offer had had expired. Wow. So. But and, she's a lovely and, lady. <laughs> right, right. Well right. And, and unfortunately for her that, you know, her parents did not share that information with her because I'm sure had they started the process uh, when she was still in high school, then by the time she she finished high school, she would have hopefully been a resident by then. They had a classic case of they tried something when they initially came to the United States. They tried a process, and it was denied. And they actually, the parents, both of them had deportation orders. And they thought better to keep a low profile and not tell anyone rather than opening up a can of worms. And I have a a, a totally different view of that. I say open the can of worms because only by opening it can you get yourself straight with the law. And that's what we did. We reopened her case the daughter's case. We didn't reopen the one for the parents or, or her, she has a sister. We didn't open those cases, but we reopened the da- her case and we applied for asylum for her. And there you go. And, and so we were able to fix it for her. So. Wow. And, and um, you know, I, I know I've spoken to many people over the years who had immigration issues and, you know, met an attorney or or wasn't an attorney as a paralegal practicing outside the scope of of their authority and practicing law and and we've seen that a lot uh, in South Florida and in other places and the wrong paperwork was filed um yeah. and when i say wrong paperwork i mean you know it wasn't the appropriate forms to use for the government. And and in some cases, you know, uh, people, people were put on a deportation list based on their own petition. Um, what kind of caution can we give to people about that? So I, I used to actually be the sh- chairwoman of an unlicensed practice of law committee, and I used to see many of those cases. I, I used to see many cases where people would pay a great great sums of money to persons who were not attorneys. And I always used to think to myself, I can't believe they're giving all this money to someone who's not even an attorney for the same amount of money or even less. They might have found a real attorney who could have either helped them or told them that, no, you cannot be helped. Um, so I'll give you some basic pointers that I saw from, from, that com- from my work on that committee. 
One is do not meet an attorney at a coffee shop. It seemed to be a recurring theme that in these situations, either the, the notary would go to the house of the client or they would meet at a coffee shop or they would meet at a mall. And the reason for that is very simple because the person doesn't have an address. They don't have an office. They don't have a way for you to track them when you call the police because of the fraud that they've just done to you. So that it's not for convenience to you. It's because they're protecting themselves. We had one person we were investigating that we couldn't even issue a subpoena on because there was no way to get to him. He had no office, no way for us to actually get, get him the subpoena that we were trying to get him. And then whenever we thought he was even in town, he'd take off and he'd go to another country. So that was, that's one big tip. The person has to have an office. Number two, if the person is right. an attorney of Florida, right, that's number one. Number two, if the person <laughs> is an attorney of Florida, you will find them on the website of the Florida Bar. You will find that name, first name, and last name. And there should also, I would like to think, be a degree on some kind of wall. There should be something on the wall that tells you that they're actually an attorney in Florida or in some state. There should be a way for you to find it. The reason it's important is because attorneys have certain obligations to their clients, very, very basic obligations. And if they don't meet, like returning calls, if, if attorneys don't do certain things, they lose their license, they lose their career, as it should be, as they should lose their licenses if they're causing harm by not helping their clients. So you definitely want to go with an attorney to make sure that you have some way of getting back at a person if they harm you. Know, if they harm you. Um, and it, like I said, if they're a Florida attorney, you'll find them on the website of the Florida Bar. And even if they are an attorney and they've done something that they shouldn't be doing, there's a way to complain against an attorney. There's no way to complain against a notary. There's no way to complain against a notary. A notary doesn't have ethical obligations. One other big clue that tells you it's a notary and not an attorney is almost every immigration form has a section that says signature of preparer. It has to include the address, the phone number, and the signature and the name of the person who prepared the form. If you're looking at a form and it's all filled out and they ask you to sign, but the preparer signature section is not filled out, that person has probably not an attorney and you should run not walk away from them because they will cause you harm right right absolutely and um and i know that you know people have been harmed many times uh because you know either the person was an attorney and didn't know what they were doing uh or they were not an attorney and they were practicing as an attorney um what uh, and i imagine that the federal government um, has very little um, sympathy in that type of situation. Yes, they do. you know it's, and I'll give you one one example uh, because I think that this is where I learn the most is when things happen to my clients and then I have to kind of clean it up and see what I do. There was a gentleman who was married. He entered the United States legally as a, as a tourist, and then he met a young lady, and they married and they were very much in love they were high school sweethearts they had children together everything seemed to be in order for him to get his residency his green card through that marriage to his u.s citizen wife what happens when we go to the interview the officer says have you ever applied for a work permit before and he looked at her like what are you talking about and he says no he said no so when in that moment when he says no he has just lied to a federal officer 
because he right. had in fact right he had in fact applied for a work permit before he did not remember because he didn't remember that many 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 years before it, he had gone to a notary and he had gone there for a receipt because back in the day with a receipt you could get a driver's license in Florida and that's really what people want they just wanted the re- they just wanted the receipt so they could get they didn't want the work permit they knew the work permit was going to be denied but with the receipt of the of the application and petition they could get a driver's license and so what happened is this man did the notary did apply on his behalf in order to get this receipt and so when he said no he had never applied now suddenly he committed fraud against a federal officer and suddenly we were in big problems <laughs> trying to explain right. why he just committed fraud and told an officer no when the officer had documents that obviously showed that, yes, he had applied for something many years before. And we were able to, you know, do a waiver, and it took, you know, a long time and get the case resolved. But it, it became much more complex. And, of course, in that case also, the notary did not sign. He said what you know these clients usually say in these situations i didn't know english at the time i didn't know what i was signing it was a blank form i was told i just needed the receipt it's classic obviously another piece of warning don't sign anything that you don't understand or that's blank no matter how good it sounds if it sounds too good to be true it usually is that's right that's right and uh uh switching gears a little bit i want to talk about um, the recent case of Marco Coelho, who was a Venezuelan uh, national um, who was an asylum seeker, uh, who was taken into custody uh, here in Miami. Um, and I was it I believe it was two weeks ago that he was taken into custody. Um, let's talk about. OK, let's talk about that situation and what happened. So Marco Coelho is living proof that the government of Venezuela tortures people who protest against the government. He, is, um, he was able to legally leave Venezuela, legally enter the United States on a, on a visitor um, visa. And I say legally leave Venezuela because they did not issue any kind of prohibition on his international travel, um, which was incredible. So in February of 2014, he was 18 years old, and he was, in, he was one of many students who was involved in a march. The way it ended up happening at the end of that day is... A, a march in they, Venezuela. A march in Venezuela, right. He was involved okay. in a march protesting against the situation in Venezuela. He wasn't happy, you know, just like we have here, you know, we have March for this, March for Science, March for this, March for the other. And he was involved in a, yeah, why not? Let's march on. So he was involved in a march, a student march, you know, and he thought it was all going to be fine. Well, not so much. Uh, among things that happened, a tear gas canister was thrown at his body. National Guard fired uh, um, bullets at him, at him and other people. Three people died that day. Um, so, you know, it was not a peaceful march. He was detained and other people were detained. When he was dis- detained, he was, at, he was told, you have to sign a statement saying that a man by the name of Leopoldo Lopez was the mastermind behind all the violence that took place at this march. And Marco Coelho, which it still amazes me today to say it, said no. 
That 18-year-old boy said, no. And they said, we will kill you if you don't sign it. And he said, then you're going to have to kill me because I'm not going to sign it. And they took him and they tortured him. And he, what, what is incredible is that he was eventually released because his mental state was very affected by what happened. They released him in July 2014. And they kept him in this kind of circus trial until September 2015. September 2015, his father gets a tip from someone who says, your son is going to be incarcerated in three days. They're all going to go to jail. You know, it's not true what they did, but they're all going to be, you know, they're all going to be found guilty. And that is, in fact, what happened three days later to Leopoldo Lopez, right? Leopoldo Lopez today is the most well-known political prisoner in all of Latin America. And if President Maduro ever falls, Leopoldo Lopez is likely to become the next president of Venezuela. He's like the Mandela of Venezuela. So what happened is my client came to the U.S., and after coming to the United States, he was then able to talk about the torture that he endured at the hands of the Venezuelan police. He's one of the few, I would think he's the only person who's been able to speak about what happened, because the ones who are still in Venezuela obviously can't speak. So this is a man who has a slam dunk case for asylum. This is like the guy. This is the poster child for asylum, this kid. Right. right. And and let me just ask a question. So tortured physically, emotionally, pretty much in every way. Physically, for sure. Emotionally, for sure. He, you know, he's the... He survived electric shocks. He survived beatings. He survived someone, yeah, someone putting a gun to his head. And the only reason he wasn't shot right there is because another officer took the, you know, hit the hands of the officer who was about to kill him and said, don't do it here. There's cameras here. Do it upstairs. I mean, that, and he overheard all that. So um, he survived all that. Yeah, it's, it's amazing he survived. It's amazing he survived all that. But he did. He survived it. And he can now speak of it. So... He applied for asylum eight days after arriving in the U.S. because literally that is the reason he came to the U.S. He came to the U.S., arrived. Eight days later, we applied for his asylum. We go to his interview, which is a normal process. You fill out an application, you send it in, and then you wait for your interview, and we go to the interview. I naively thought that the officer was going to say, it's an honor to meet you. I thought that's what was going to happen because – Marco Coelho is known internationally. Instead, two officers were there, and they detained him. And they said, we're going to detain you. The asylum officers said, we cannot listen to your asylum case. We won't even listen to it. And they, the ICE officers took him, detained him in a place called Chrome. And they, yes, Chrome, know, it, Chrome Detention <laughs> Center, for those listeners not in the South Florida area, Chrome Detention Center, it's right. located uh, south in South Dade County by Florida city and Homestead. Right. And so they took him and right as soon as I walked out, I I couldn't even fit. His father was in the lobby waiting. His father, the man who rescued him from Minnesota was in the lobby waiting. And I could not even look at the man in the eye because I, I felt so guilty about everything. I felt terribly guilty because I thought here, I'm telling him how great it's going to be. I prep him for an interview and, and the man has just been detained. And of course, when you are a person who has gone through so much trauma, the first thing he thought was he was going to be deported back to Venezuela. That's what he thought. That was exactly what he thought. And I know that that's what he thought because I've spoken to him since, and, and we've been able to talk about, you know, what he went through. But his first thought was, I'm about to be taken back, and I'll never see my parents again because I'll be killed when I return. And so 
as soon as we stepped out of the office, um, his cousin, who was the person who was going to be serving as translator, talked to the father and explained what had happened. I stepped out and I started calling all the media. Everyone I possibly could, I spoke to. I have a marketing director who's really great. And I spoke to her and I told her, tell everyone, tell absolutely everyone what's going on. And I reached out to the office of Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz and her um, communications people helped. And the family also reached out to the office of Congressman Marco Rubio. We got everybody in a press conference and by 1 p.m., the world knew what had happened. And I do say the world because it was all over the news. Yes, yes, it definitely made made uh, made news quite a bit. The next day, thankfully, he was released. Yeah, that that's uh, I'll tell you that's a miracle in itself to uh, <laughs> to have been yeah. taken into custody and and pretty much in less than twenty four hours uh, being released. I mean, uh, we have folks here in the county jail that that get picked up for for something minor and, and it's a pretty much a 30 hour stay in the jail at a minimum. So I don't know, I don't know how, how that worked out. Well, I, I am very grateful for the team, for, for our team at, at Blend and Law. They, I mean, when I tell you, they all got into high gear and they started calling everyone. I'm grateful for the media that understood the importance and I'm grateful for, for the politicians who were involved, who also, I mean, one of one of I don't know if it was a tweet or a statement he said, but one of the things that I liked that Marco Rubio said, he said, how can we criticize, you know, say that, you know, Venezuela is wrong for detaining someone and then we detain the same person. I mean, it just right. it seems ludicrous. So thankfully, all of that came together and it all worked to, to get him released. I, I, I do believe um, the reason I, I speak so much and so passionately about Marco Coelho is because I would like to believe, I don't want to believe that it's that they did it purposefully. I would like to believe that it was a computer glitch. Uh, he has a, Marco has a conviction for trespassing, that, that very you know, horrible crime of trespassing. Uh, that's a yes. security concern. <laughs> and yes. uh, he has a conviction for that. And I would like to believe that they, they eventually said there was a computer glitch. I would like to believe that they made a computer error and they thought perhaps he was in, you know, he had a conviction for something greater and maybe that's why they detained him. Sadly, they never explained why they detained him. They never explained why they released him. They just detained him and then released him. Yeah. And what's interesting is, and, and of course you were quoted in a, in a, in a few articles uh, in the Miami Herald and I'm sure in other news outlets as well. Um, and uh, what's interesting is that initially they said he had a marijuana possession charge. Um, and at some point uh, that that charge became a trespass charge. So I don't know. Right. I, I don't know the right. details was, of that, but it's <laughs> right. What was, what was also what was also most interesting is it doesn't matter, which is why when I heard that that was their explanation, I was like, that doesn't matter. I don't want them. I don't want there to be a mistake, a mistaken belief that people with convictions don't get asylum interviews. Because I forgot to mention the most important part: he wasn't detained after getting an asylum interview. He never got his interview. He never was oh. asked a single question. Never, not one question about his case. They just said, "We're not going to listen to you. We're not going to listen to you. We're going to detain you without even listening to you." And, and that's. That is what really angered me because I had prepped him 
for an interview. I had, it's, you know, he was completely blindsided, and so was I, by what happened. We walked in there with evidence and with testimony to be interviewed. He was dressed, and his father said this, he was dressed like a boy for his first communion. He thought this was going to be a happy day, that he was going to tell his testimony, and people were going to be just, they were going to give him asylum. They thought it was going to be a happy day. There's, there's a picture that was taken by his father, and he took that picture because he thought it was going to be a happy day. And it was taken moments before Marco was detained. So I don't want people to think that that's normal. That is extremely abnormal, regardless of whether you have a conviction for trespassing, for burglary, or, or marijuana possession, or hit and run, whatever. All of those convictions, you still get your interview. You still get your interview. Right. And why do you think um, why do you think that they immediately you know jumped at the opportunity to take him into custody without without some kind of interview? It's my understanding from a reporter who's doing an investigation on this that there are two other people in the United States that this has happened to, and that it has happened in the same way. I saw you know overly. Uh, aggressive ICE officers don't even want to wait for the interview. I have heard of it happening that they wait for the interview and then they detain the person, but I've never heard of them not waiting for the interview. And another one of them was also in Chrome. It was, it was a Russian man and he was also put in Chrome, but another one was a Somali in Maine. Those are the only three cases that I've ever heard of. When, when I was initially asked, I had never heard of it. But now another uh, reporter told me that they found two other cases in the United States. So it's highly unusual why it happened. Only they know, and I hope someday that, that maybe reporters will find out and will be able to tell us because it's very odd. It's very odd. So. Yeah, it certainly is. So um, what is it's his... Kind of like, it's kind of like the FBI director getting fired in the middle of a Russian you know, investigation. It's kind of odd like yeah, that. And, <laughs> Things happen. Yeah, and actually <laughs> they're reporting on the news that uh, that Director Comey was actually traveling on bureau business uh, in LA and, uh, and someone read him the letter over the phone. Oh my. Yeah. So brave new world, brave new world. That's, that's, that's all that's, you know, we're, we're redefining due process. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Yes. And, yeah. and all for the, Marco. Reason. Yeah. And for Marco, what's what's the next step now? I mean, so so he was he was released from custody. So what's the next step for him? So the next step is that um, he's probably going to, and I say probably because uh, you know things are unusual in his case, but probably he will get a hearing date in front of an immigration judge. Um, at which point, I will have the opportunity to say, Your Honor, please terminate this case so that the Miami Asylum Office can actually interview him. You know, let's go back to step one, and then we're going to do step right. two. If they, if they deny him, then you can go back to step two. But that's what I would like is, um, you know, if, if there is a hearing, a judge is going to have to say, wait, you guys have to interview him. So that's just what's going to happen, and, and that is my hope. But we don't have that date yet. Right. But um, l- let me let – me, uh, throw in another other angle here another perspective in that with the law and and the executive order uh does he have to go in front of a judge at this point 
He does. Um, I don't think it was proper the way it was done, but now that his case has been put into deportation proceedings, we now have to go in front of a judge. And so now we will, I will argue in front of the judge, Your Honor, please respectfully close this case. Judges do that. They close cases. They terminate cases. So the interesting thing is that a judge will make a decision between the attorney for immigration on one side and my, you know, the clients and myself on the other. It's just like any other courtroom. And the judge has to decide kind of who's right based on the law. And that's why I like very much practicing in immigration court, because just because immigration says it's so, it doesn't mean it's so. Um, and the judge will decide based on the law and based on who writes the best brief and who, and who argues the law. And, and generally, I, one of the things I like about immigration law is that the attorneys for immigration are highly overworked. They are trying to deport many, many people, and they do not have as much time to prepare um, as you would think. So sometimes we'll win cases for very simple reasons. Um, and that's that's a good that's a good outcome. That's a good day. So so, so you're saying the the uh, the attorneys for the federal government are are very overworked. Absolutely, they are overworked. Okay. They sometimes read they read cases six seconds before talking about a case, and they just have wow. way too many cases. They're trying to deport too many people, and sometimes they don't even have the files with them. Sometimes you show up with your client and they don't even have their files. That's terrible. Not for us. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, right, for right. <laughs> for us, it's kind of great. <laughs> right, right. I once, yeah, I once won an appeal because a machine, you know, they record all the hearings. And a machine once didn't work. And so at the hearing, the, the machine, the tape recorder didn't work. And so when we went on appeal, all you would hear was this high-pitched whine. And I won the appeal because I said, obviously, it wasn't recorded. It needs to be recorded. So I won the appeal, and when it went down, when it came back, that immigration judge was no longer there. And so we got a different immigration judge, and we won the case. Wow. <laughs> you you wow. never know what's going to happen. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Um, so what, what those, those seeking political asylum and those with complex immigration issues, um, and, and I, I guess pretty much most immigration cases are complex in their own way. What's, what's the first step? I mean, you know, if, if I'm in that situation, what's my first step? Like I wouldn't even know what to do, you know? So what, what okay. would someone do? This is their first step. And I okay, imagine you'll be talking step. about this at, at, at the, um, the fair that you're going to have uh, in June on June 3rd. Right. Right, right. So the first step, and I always say this, is you have, to, you have to work with a lawyer that you trust and like. Both of those things are requirements. It's not enough if you like the lawyer, but you don't trust their abilities. It's not enough if you trust the abilities, but you don't like the person. So thankfully, there are many good immigration lawyers out there. I, you know, there are many, many people who are good immigration lawyers. And I would say um, there are ways to find out. So there are attorneys who are board certified. Board certified means that that attorney has taken a test. First of all, they have a certain number of years of experience. They have over five years of experience in only immigration law, primarily immigration law. Then they have to go through a process where judges and other attorneys speak about their ethics and whether they'll, they'll make good immigration experts. And last, 
they have to take a test, which is an exam, a board certification exam. Only about 15% of attorneys who take that exam pass that exam. I know because I'm on that committee, and starting in June, I'm the vice chair of the board certification committee. So Congratulations. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. So trust me when I say that that test is really hard, but it really weeds out the very, very, very dedicated immigration attorneys in Florida. So there's a place that you can go. You can go um, to the Florida Bar website and you will see which attorneys are board certified in immigration law. And those are the ones you want to go to. You don't want to invest a lot of time, energy, and money with an attorney who is not as good as others and it, so that would be my first step. I would say go look, go see an, a board immigration attorney. We all know each other. We know who's good. We know who's not so great. You know, we, among the board certified ones, we're all, I have to admit they're all pretty good um, because that's what they do. So go see a board certified attorney. They will tell you. And if they tell you, no, nothing can be done, listen to them. But if they tell you, yes, something can be done and these are the steps, then pretty much that's it. Those are the steps. Right. So that, that would be my first thing. Go see a board-certified immigration attorney. Yeah, you know, I, I'm always leery because, uh, and, and I'll tell you of, of what. I'm leery of um, the the attorney or the practitioner who does everything. Mm-hmm. You know, they'll do uh, real estate law, immigration law, criminal defense, uh, contracts, and you know, a list of of various services, because I know that the immigration laws and and policies and rules are updating on a daily basis. And how can you possibly keep track of all those updates when you're practicing various types of law? And this is just from the layperson. I'm not an attorney. You know, I feel the same way about physicians as well. I want to go to the specialist. Right. And even, and that's why I said, even among the board certified attorneys, we know, we know each our, like we know what we practice in. Like I said, I'm, I'm well known pretty much at the national level for asylum. There, there are cases I won't take. I won't take the investors who want to come here from China and pay a million dollars to get a green card. I don't, I don't take those. I'll give those to someone that I know who's very good. Likewise, I won't take someone who has a criminal conviction, especially not one related to controlled substances, to drugs, because that also has its own specialty. And I'll refer those to someone else that I know who's board certified and is very good. So we all know each other. You know, if someone if someone wants to send an asylum case, they'll know to send to me because that's, that's something that I speak about, at, you know, at a certain level, at a national level. I speak about these, these things. And you're, you mentioned, you know, how law changes all the time. Um, sometimes you can get asylum, and one of, it's one of my favorite tricks that, again, you only find out about this by reading about it. So they right. say that you, you can only get, a, like, a green card. You can only get asylum if you can demonstrate like why you'll be harmed. Like are you a member of some kind of group that if you go back to your country, you'll be harmed. In some countries, being denied asylum is a reason for you to be harmed. Like, for example, El Salvador. In El Salvador, if you return to El Salvador after being in the U.S. for a very long time, they're going to assume you applied for asylum and they're going to assume you got denied. And that's the only reason you were sent back. 
That in itself mm. is a reason to kill you. So that is a very creative, and that's what I was talking about, the creative reasons as to how to get help people. That's a creative right. reason that we use. So. Very, very, very helpful information. And, and give us the information again on the event that's happening June 3rd. So it's June 3rd, 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. It's a free event. Um, the information about it should be available at www.blandon-law.com. Uh, it will be a um, uh, your, yourself, <laughs> yourself, and a family therapist. And we will be providing also immigration information. So we'll be providing a range of information for people who want to know about what to do with, you know, uh, childcare plans, power of attorney, immigration options, how to deal with the anxiety of a possible deportation, all that. Wonderful. Um, any any closing comments as as we come to to an end of uh, of another great show? And I thank you for that. Thank you. Um, the only comment I would make, and I make it in general, whether I'm saying it to my children or I'm saying it to my team or I'm saying it to my clients, is you already have the no. We are now working for the yes. Don't put your head in the sand and think that things can't change. Look for the yes. Go talk to people. Go talk to a board-certified immigration attorney. They might tell you that there's something that can be done. Wonderful. Um, I thank you so much for joining us this evening on the Michael Calderon Show. Uh, And again, uh, to the listeners, uh, we've had Elizabeth Blandin on, who's an immigration attorney here in South Florida, um, fluent in Spanish and French and English. Uh, Her website is www.blandon-law.com. And if you want to call the office, you can call 954-385-0157. Again, that's 954-385-0157. A member of their team is ready to answer the call 24-7. You can call the office and uh, someone will get back to you uh, the next business day. And, uh, again, Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining us on the Michael Calderon Show. Um, That's going to conclude this show. Uh, We had a great show uh, last week, last weekend, with Lynn Ibe. For those that that didn't have an opportunity to listen live, uh, the audio is uploaded on the show page, so you can – you can listen to uh, to the show, and also, uh, if you can, try to pick up a copy of her book. Uh, it's a fabulous book, and, and I talked about it uh, during the interview. Um, this upcoming weekend, we have May Golan, who is a um, an activist out in Israel, and uh, she's going to be joining us from Tel Aviv. Uh, we're excited about that as well. And uh, she's a news commentator and activist out there in Israel. And um, we thank you so much. Have a wonderful week and a wonderful night. And we'll talk soon.